Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we were going over the Come Follow Me lesson for September 19th through 25th, 2022. This is covering Isaiah chapters 40 through 49. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hello, Scripture. So great to see you. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 43 minutes, 5 seconds. Wonderful. And what would that be daily? 6 minutes, 9 seconds. Come on, we all can do it. Here we've got time codes if you want to take this chapter by chapter or buckle up and we'll talk about it all together. And for those of you who have inquired about prints of my art that I use in the show, check out 43rdstreet.com. The link is in the video description. So let's start off with Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 begins a section that some scholars call Second Isaiah. Yeah, it's got a bit of a different flavor than what we've talked about so far. You might have noticed a feeling of maybe a heavier hand of God with declarations of judgments and problems in these first chapters that we've read, but chapter 40 marks a different tone. You might sense that as we go along. The Institute Manual gives us this further insight on that. It says, Isaiah 40 through 66 is prophetic. Although reference is made to Isaiah's immediate future, the burden of his prophecy is for the latter days. Most Bible scholars feel that these chapters are historical and that they were written by others after Judah was exiled to Babylon. Yet Book of Mormon prophets quote parts or all of Isaiah 48 through 53, indicating that these chapters must have been included on the brass plates before the Babylonian exile. Christ told the Nephites that Isaiah spake as touching all things concerning my people, which are of the house of Israel. Therefore, it must needs be that he must speak also to the Gentiles. Isaiah's prophecies concerning Israel's destiny are more reliable than the limited perspective of historians. True. Now, some of you out there may find yourself singing the first five verses of this chapter. This is probably because you know Handel's Messiah. After the overture, movements 2 through 4 use the text from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Later, Movement 9 uses chapter 40, verse 9, and Movement 20 uses chapter 40, verse 11. We'll include links to hear these movements in the description. It should be clear, then, that what we are about to read is very messianic in nature. Absolutely. Just listen to these words, starting at verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably. To Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In the coming verses, look for words and phrases that would give comfort to Israel, and think too what in these verses gives you comfort. Starting in verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. 
and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now, not only should that last verse sound very familiar, as it is a famous movement of Handel's Messiah, but it is also quoted in the document, The Living Christ, the Testimony of the Apostles. This is a very clear promise concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. But what of this voice that crieth in the wilderness? Let's take a look at the Institute Manual. It says, Luke quoted Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, not only verse 3, but also verses 4 and 5, which are clearly millennial in application. When Joseph Smith revised Luke's passage, he added five verses that also apply to the second coming and clearly identify the Savior as him for whom the forerunner would prepare the way. Since the five verses the prophet Joseph added were put in the middle of Luke's quotation of Isaiah, it can be assumed they were part of Isaiah's original text. They are therefore cited here. They were inserted between verses 3 and 4 of Luke. For behold, and lo, he shall come, as it is written in the book of the prophets, to take away the sins of the world, and to bring salvation unto the heathen nations, to gather together those who are lost, who are of the sheepfold of Israel, yea, even the dispersed and afflicted, and also to prepare the way and make possible the preaching of the gospel unto the Gentiles, and to be a light unto all who sit in darkness." unto the uttermost parts of the earth, to bring to pass the resurrection from the dead, and to ascend up on high, to dwell on the right hand of the Father, until the fullness of time, and the law and the testimony shall be sealed, and the keys of the kingdom shall be delivered up again unto the Father, to administer justice unto all, to come down in judgment upon all, and to convince all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed, and all this in the day that he shall come. By the way, you can see those verses in your Joseph Smith translation appendix, specifically for Luke 3, 4 through 11. In your gospel library, you find this in the study helps section. Back to the manual. Clearly, John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy twice, but there was to be yet another fulfillment of the prophecy. Another forerunner who prepared for Christ's coming was the prophet Joseph Smith. Right. Let's pick it up again in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Let's jump down to verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. 
Now, I don't know about you guys, but these verses I find incredibly inspiring, especially the promise that even though I love the compare, I have all sons, so I love even the youths shall faint and be weary. If you've ever worked with the youth of the church or in other places, you know that they seem to have boundless energy and even the young men shall utterly fall. But it mentions that the Lord's power, the Lord's strength goes even far beyond that. He, in other words, never gets weary. He never gets tired of doing his work, of helping his children. Elder Robert D. Hales, in the October 2011 General Conference, offered an explanation of what it means to wait upon the Lord. He says, quote, In the scriptures, the word wait means to hope, to anticipate, and to trust. To hope and trust in the Lord requires faith, patience, humility, meekness, long-suffering, keeping the commandments, and enduring to the end. Waiting upon the Lord means pondering in our hearts and receiving the Holy Ghost so that we can know all things what we should do. As we follow the promptings of the Spirit, we discover that tribulation worketh patience, and we learn to continue in patience until we are perfected. Close quote. Now, if you feel like you've had trouble or struggled with, as it says in verse 31, waiting upon the Lord, then read the previous verses and see if they can't help inspire you to know how better to turn to the Lord to receive his strength, because he fainteth not, and to seek the wisdom from him whose understanding cannot be comprehended. He gives power to the strength. If you have no might, he gives an increase. Those promises will help us to wait upon the Lord. Very true. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 41, starting in verse 9. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them, and shalt not find them, even them that contended with thee. They that war against thee shall be as nothing, and a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. Check the footnote on that. It means someone who is meek and humble. And ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. That's so beautiful. But to truly take comfort in these words and to follow the admonition to wait upon the Lord, we need to trust in him. Chapters 42 to 47 include Isaiah's efforts to help the people understand that they need to place their trust 
in the Savior Jesus Christ. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 42, and let's start in verse 5. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I the Lord have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now, like with much of Isaiah's writings, the freeing of prisoners from prison can and does mean multiple things. Rescuing us from false ideas, helping us to see things from an eternal perspective, helping us to overcome sin and the natural man, which can keep us captive spiritually. But it can also refer to the event described in Doctrine and Covenants 138. Let's start in verse 18. While this vast multitude waited and conversed, rejoicing in the hour of their deliverance from the chains of death, the Son of God appeared, declaring liberty to the captives who had been faithful. And there he preached to them the everlasting gospel, the doctrine of the resurrection and the redemption of mankind from the fall and from individual sins on conditions of repentance. In these two verses, can you picture the event that's being described here? This is a revelation describing Christ's appearance between his death and resurrection in the spirit world to open up the missionary work of the spirit world. Let's go on in Doctrine and Covenants 138 with verse 30. But behold, from among the righteous he organized his forces and appointed messengers, clothed with power and authority, and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. And the chosen messengers went forth to declare the acceptable day of the Lord and proclaim liberty to the captives who were bound, even unto all who would repent of their sins and receive the gospel. That's great. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 42. Let's look at verse 10. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Now, what is this new song? The Institute Manual tells us, Isaiah recorded the singing of the new song after he recorded the restoration of the gospel. The song is unique in that only those who are sanctified are worthy to sing it. You can check Revelation chapter 14, 1 through 3. The same spirit is reflected in Doctrine and Covenants 84, verses 98 through 102. We talked about that last year. In another instance, the song is simply called the Song of the Lamb. That reference is in Doctrine and Covenants section 133, verses 56 through 57. Nice. So let's take a look in verse 16 of Isaiah 42. And I will bring the blind by a way they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. Now look at the contrast to those who choose to trust in the things of man. So we have verse 16 and what the Lord will do for those who are blind. 
And then verse 17, they shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images that say to the molten images, ye are our gods. And then comes the call to return to the Messiah. So we have the blind who God will make crooked things straight and lead them on this path. For those who worship graven images, they will be greatly ashamed and turned back. And now we have verse 18, the call to return. Hear ye deaf and look ye blind that ye may see. Now, I think it's interesting that those who depend and trust only on those things that can be heard or seen with our physical senses are handicapped spiritually. I think the same could be said for those things that we feel with physical emotions like anger and fear and prejudice, but even empathy and compassion. As we've discussed in the past, traits like that are not virtues in and of themselves, only if they're centered in Jesus Christ. Only then will we truly hear and see. What I mean to say is, We need to be careful of the sources that we're using to find truth. Real truth, truth that will help the deaf to hear and the blind to see, that we can be led in paths out of darkness and into light, that only comes through Christ. In Isaiah 42, verses 19 through 22, Isaiah taught that only those who hearken to Jesus Christ can be healed of their spiritual blindness and deafness. To see that illustrated even more clearly, check out the Joseph Smith translation in your appendix for Isaiah 42, verses 19 through 23. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 43. Let's take a look at the first few verses, starting in verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, Thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. So here the Lord describes what a Savior and Redeemer is for his people. In the rest of Isaiah chapter 43, the Lord told the Israelites that they were witnesses of him, because of the great things he had done for them, and he emphasized that there is no Savior other than him. Let's take a look at verse 14. Thus saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles, and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. The Institute Manual adds this insight, The Lord sent Israel into Babylonian bondage for a wise cause. It is likely that the purpose in her captivity was at least twofold, to humble proud and wicked Israel and to have indisputable cause 
for destroying Babylon and showing the world that this attractive daughter of the Chaldeans was a poor one to emulate, for she would be no more. And all of this would be as sure as the destruction of the Egyptians in the days of Moses, which had become legendary. Now here's one more thought. In our video, How We Got the Bible, we mentioned that the Old Testament scriptures were mostly written in Hebrew with a few later texts written in Aramaic, which is the language of Babylon. As far as we know, the first time the scriptures were translated into a language other than their original was after the Babylonian captivity, after Babylon had conquered Judah. These translations were the Babylonian Targum, written in Aramaic. They were necessary, as the Jews had been in Babylon so long that many were no longer able to read Hebrew. But this was just the beginning. A couple of centuries after the Targum, the scriptures were translated into Greek. This volume is referred to as the Septuagint and would have been commonplace at the time of Jesus Christ's mortal ministry. From there, the scriptures were translated into Latin, Spanish, German, French, English, and many, many other languages. Now, I'm not making any kind of authoritative interpretation here, but is it possible that one of the reasons that Judah was conquered by Babylon was so that the scriptures would be translated into other languages? so that eventually God's word could be sent to all the earth. Now, I don't know, but it's an interesting point to ponder. It certainly is. It's amazing how grand and far-reaching are the works of the Lord. So, if we know from these chapters that we can trust in our Savior to redeem and deliver us, then we should always know who to turn to in times of need. This is emphasized in the next few chapters, so let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 9. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god, or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Jumping ahead to verse 14. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof, and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh a graven image, and falleth down thereto. Can you see the awkwardness? that he's painting a picture of here. There's a tree and you can cut it down or you could plant a tree and the rain will nourish it and you can chop it and use it to make things or to burn so that you can cook things. And you can also make it into a god and bow down and worship it. He's painting a picture of how absurd that is. Now going forward, he will repeat this contrast between the usefulness of God's blessings, like the wood of a tree, that should be used with praise and thanksgiving, and the using of God's gifts to make items that we worship instead of him. Let's keep going in verse 16. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire." 
and the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Do you see the absurdity of that? Look at what the Lord our Redeemer can provide. In verse 21, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant. O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. And he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. In the April 2013 General Conference, Elder D. Todd Christofferson had this to say, quote, Among the most significant of Jesus Christ's descriptive titles is Redeemer. The word Redeem means to pay off an obligation or a debt. Redeem can also mean to rescue or set free as by paying a ransom. If someone commits a mistake and then corrects it or makes amends, we say he has redeemed himself. Each of these meanings suggests different facets of the great redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ through his atonement, which includes, in the words of the dictionary, to deliver from sin and its penalties, as by a sacrifice made for the sinner. Close quote. Nice. Such a beautiful title, Redeemer. Indeed. Notice at the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45, this is that prophecy of Cyrus the Great of Persia, who would allow the Babylonian captives to return to Judah and rebuild the temple. Let's take a look at that. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. And then the first verse of chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, it's important to remember that at the time Isaiah is writing this, Babylon had not yet risen to power, 
much less conquered Judah. That wouldn't happen for over a century. The return of the Jews to Jerusalem would happen even later. From the Institute Manual, we get this insight. After recording numerous prophecies of Judah's coming destruction and their fall to Babylon, Isaiah revealed the Lord's plan for Judah's restoration to their homeland under a king called Cyrus. At the time Isaiah spoke his name, Cyrus was still in the premortal existence. Now, the Institute Manual then quotes Sidney B. Sperry in his book, The Voice of Israel's Prophets. Numerous commentators deny that Isaiah could foresee Cyrus so clearly as to be able to call him by name. They commonly claim, therefore, that this part of Isaiah was written by someone during the exile and after Cyrus had given Israel help. In other words, after the event. Nevertheless, it is of great interest to find that the Jewish historian Josephus accepted Isaiah's words and even quotes letters from Cyrus confirming the prophet's predictions. Part of the account of Josephus is quoted herewith. He, God, stirred up the mind of Cyrus and made him write this throughout all Asia. Thus saith Cyrus the king, Since God Almighty hath appointed me to be king of the habitable earth, I believe that he is that God which the nation of the Israelites worship. For indeed he foretold my name by the prophets, and that I should build him a house at Jerusalem in the country of Judea. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of prophecies. For this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power, an earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. So he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them leave to go back to their own country and to rebuild their city, Jerusalem, and the temple of God, for that he would be their assistant and that he would write to the rulers and governors that were in the neighborhood of their country of Judea, that they should contribute to them gold and silver for the building of the temple, and besides that, beasts for their sacrifices." I really appreciate that because we can get caught up in the idea that if we're looking at it from only a secular perspective, the only way that someone could have written such a specific prophecy is if it was written after the fact. And of course, we believe in the gift of prophecy. Absolutely. I really love, too, Cyrus's attitude. I think it's really very consistent with the reading that we talked about in the book of Ezra. Because it doesn't mention there what motivated him to have the Jews go back and rebuild the temple. But yeah, what if he had read it in the writings of Isaiah and then said, wow, this is what the Lord God wants me to do. That's a great perspective. I love that. So let's go on to Isaiah chapter 45. Here, Isaiah continues to teach Israel about the Lord, emphasizing that Christ is the Lord and there is none else. Let's pick it up in verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. 
I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Let's jump ahead to verse 12. I have made the earth, and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. Skipping to verse 17. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it, not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Skipping to verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together who hath declared this from ancient time, who hath told it from that time. Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. I don't know if you missed the subtlety of the message in those verses. (laughs) Why is it so important for us to know this? Have you seen the difference in looking to the things of man for help? Versus when we've turned to God, there isn't another way to be saved, only through Christ. Also, there's a clear message in verse 12. I have made the earth and created man upon it. When we talk about things that we own or things that we built, do we really own those things? Applying this perspective to tithing, the Institute Manual includes this powerful quote from then-Elder Spencer W. Kimball from the April 1968 General Conference. Elder Kimball asked some pointed questions concerning this subject. Quote, Do you feel generous when you pay your tithes? Boastful when the amount is large? Has the child been generous to his parents when he washes the car, makes his bed, Are you liberal when you pay your rent or pay off notes at the bank? You are not generous, liberal, but merely honest when you pay your tithes. Perhaps your attitudes are the product of your misconceptions. Would you steal a dollar from your friend, a tire from your neighbor's car? Would you borrow a widow's insurance money with no intent to pay? Do you rob banks? You are shocked at such suggestions. Then would you rob your God, your Lord, who has made such generous arrangements with you? Do you have a right to appropriate the funds of your employer with which to pay your debts 
to buy a car, to clothe your family, to feed your children, to build your home? Would you take from your neighbor's funds to send your children to college or on a mission? Would you help relatives or friends with funds not your own? Some people get their standards mixed, their ideals out of line. Would you supply gifts to the poor with someone else's money, the Lord's money? End quote. I love that perspective. Wonderful. Well, that brings us to Isaiah chapter 46. In Isaiah's day, many in Israel had turned to two false gods, Bel and Nebo, for help with their problems. Let's see how ineffective these false gods were at helping the Israelites. Starting in verse 1, Bel boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. So not only did these false gods not save them, they became a burden to be carried with them into captivity. So in what ways can trusting in modern idols, such as wealth, possessions, physical strength, appearance, popularity, or intellect, instead of trusting in the Savior, become a burden? Let's take a look at chapter 46, verse 3. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are borne by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb. And even to your old age, I am he. And even to hoar, that means gray, and even to hoar hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will ye liken me and make me equal and compare me? that we may be like. So again, compare that with what we talked about in verses 1 and 2 about Bel and Nebo, and then look what God will do. Not only will he bear you, but he made you. The seminary manual includes this quote from Elder Richard G. Scott. This is from the October 1995 General Conference. He says, quote, This life is an experience in profound trust. Trust in Jesus Christ, trust in his teachings, trust in our capacity as led by the Holy Spirit to obey those teachings for happiness now and for a purposeful, supremely happy, eternal existence. To trust means to obey willingly without knowing the end from the beginning. To produce fruit, your trust in the Lord must be more powerful and enduring than your confidence in your own personal feelings and experience, end quote. It's such a great example, again, of the caution to not let things like our personal feelings or experience be an idol that we trust more than we trust the Lord. Great way of saying it. Let's take a look at Isaiah 47. Let's summarize it from the seminary manual. It says, Isaiah prophesied that Babylon and the Chaldeans, the inhabitants of Babylon, would be destroyed because of the sinfulness of the people. The kingdom of Babylon is frequently used in the scriptures to symbolize the world. Isaiah's prophecy that the daughter of Babylon would be destroyed can be likened to anyone who revels in their sins and iniquities and refuses to repent. Nice. 
And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 48. Now, Isaiah has been teaching us who the Savior is, what he can and will do for us, and why we should trust in him above the offerings of the world. This should bring us the most profound peace. That is the theme of our next chapter. Isaiah 48 is the first full chapter of Isaiah that the prophet Nephi quoted in the Book of Mormon. This is in 1 Nephi chapter 20. Nephi stated that his reason for reading Isaiah to his brethren was so that he might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. That's 1 Nephi 19 verse 23. So first, Isaiah sets the stage for his audience by describing their transgressions and rebellion against the Lord. Let's start in verse 1. Hear ye this, O house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel, and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, or as it says in 1 Nephi 20 verse 1, out of the waters of baptism, which swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. Skipping to verse 4. Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee, lest thou shouldest say, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. Skipping to verse 8. Yea, thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not, yea, from that time that thine ear was not opened. For I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously, and wast called a transgressor from the womb. So there's the accusations against Israel. In verses 9 through 15, the Lord told his people that despite their wickedness, he would not abandon them. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go. O oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. So when you read those verses, what blessings would the Israelites have received if they had been obedient to the Lord? Elder Quentin L. Cook talks about one of those blessings in the April 2013 General Conference. He says, quote, We all long for peace. Peace is not just safety or lack of war, violence, conflict, and contention. Peace comes from knowing that the Savior knows who we are and knows that we have faith in Him, love Him, and keep His commandments, even and especially amid life's devastating trials and tragedies. Even with the trials of life, because of the Savior's atonement and His grace, righteous living will be rewarded with personal peace. Close quote. Nice. In contrast to the peace of righteousness, take a look in verse 22. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 49. 
From the Institute Manual, Monty S. Nyman observed that chapter 49 is one of the most important chapters in the whole book of Isaiah because it also clearly foretells the mission of the Latter-day Saints and the destiny of the land of America in connection with the House of Israel. Nephi interpreted the chapter as foretelling that the land of America would receive some of scattered Israel, while his brother Jacob applied it both to the Jews in Jerusalem and to the Gentiles. Chapter 49 is of such importance that it ought to be studied diligently by every member of the church. Now that's from the book, Great Are the Words of Isaiah by Monty S. Nyman. Well, that's a great encouragement. So consider all that we've been learning, and then note that there are consequences when we turn away from the Lord. Those without understanding might feel in those times that it is the Lord that abandoned them. But note what it says in chapter 49, verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. In this case, Israel had turned away from their Redeemer and been scattered. Whether it is because of sin or from the challenges of life that can cause us to be confused and wonder where God is, the next verses should be a true comfort. Don't ever forget this. Starting in verse 15. Can a woman forget her sucking child? that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. That is an amazing image and one that I still am confounded by. I have certainly known mothers of children, and certainly my own wife as the mother of our children. And the idea that a woman could ever forget her child is unthinkable to me. And yet the Lord is assuring us they may forget, but I won't forget you. And of course, the extremely powerful and prophetic imagery of having our names graven on the palms of the Savior's hands. That's just amazing. I love it. The seminary manual includes this great quote from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland from his book, Christ and the New Covenant, the Messianic Message of the Book of Mormon. He says, quote, Even though the power of the resurrection could have, and undoubtedly one day will have, completely restored and made new the wounds from the crucifixion, nevertheless, Christ chose to retain those wounds for a purpose, including for his appearance in the last days, when he will show those marks and reveal that he was wounded in the house of his friends. The wounds in his hands, feet, and side are signs that in mortality painful things happen even to the pure and the perfect, signs that tribulation is not evidence that God does not love us, It is a significant and hopeful fact that it is the wounded Christ who comes to our rescue. He who bears the scars of sacrifice, the lesions of love, the emblems of humility and forgiveness, is the captain of our soul. That evidence of pain in mortality is undoubtedly intended to give courage to others who are also hurt and wounded by life, perhaps even in the house of their friends. End quote. What an image. Can you picture that? 
his love for us as individuals graven upon his palms? And what about the walls that he mentions in verse 16? Remember that Jerusalem will be overtaken and the walls torn down. He continually remembers our condition and our needs. He will rebuild us. Isaiah testified of this in chapter 44, verse 26. He said that the Lord through his servants saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Truly the condition of our walls are continually before the Lord. What experiences have helped you know that the Lord loves you and has not forgotten you? In the remaining verses of Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah prophesied that in the latter days the descendants of Israel will be gathered in great numbers. Verses 22 and 23 specifically refer to how the Gentiles, or non-Israelite people, will assist in this process. Verse 22, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. The Lord testified that the time will come when all people will know that he is the Savior and Redeemer of mankind. Is there a more amazing and incredible work to be involved in? Can you see now why Nephi used the words of Isaiah for his children, that he might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer? In your reading this week, mark those descriptions of the Savior and his role as your Redeemer that have been most impactful for you. What an incredible testimony these chapters are to the role and importance of the Savior Jesus Christ. Truly great are the words of Isaiah, but also what is the central theme of today's lesson? I am the Lord thy God, I am here, I am with you, I made you, I will help you. And there is no other God. Right. It's him we must depend on. But we're not done with Isaiah yet. Oh no. There's more to come. Keep reading your scriptures and we'll look forward to talking to you more about Isaiah in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans.